0: And what we're talking about in any cloud computing industry is you're starting with one group of servers and then you add them almost like Lego pieces as you're adding the number of people that you're using. That is a technological reason why the cloud works the way it does, Mr. Chief Justice.
1: Hey, you there, lawyer guy.
0: Yes, Justice Wolf.
1: You seem to know a lot about this technology stuff. Sometimes I move my mouse all the way to the edge of my mouse pad. And the arrow still hasn't reached where I want it to go. Uh. So. So then, what do I do?
0: You can. Uh, you can just pick it up and put it back in the center, Justice Wolf.
1: Okay. I've. I've got another one. Why do people keep putting pound signs in front of random words? Like, here it says pound sign bay and J.
0: Those are hashtags. That particular one would help you search for tweets related to Beyonce and Jay-Z.
1: I don't know what he's saying. Does anybody understand what he's saying? While you're here, can you look at my smartphone? I can't get into it.
0: Uh, Do you know what your passcode is, Justice Wolf? My what? It would probably be something that springs readily to mind.
1: Mm, Then try Justice Alito, equal sign, hottie.
0: Yeah, I'm not comfortable typing that in.
1: Then what good are you? I also really wanted you to show me how to YouTube and to do the Netflix, but we have to move on. Today on the show, Dahlia Lithwick breaks down the sudden flood of court decisions, and Andrew Leonard talks about why the World Cup freaks out people like Ann Coulter. And now he made a crazy fun hat using Hobby Lobby appliques, glitter, and contraceptive sponges, Colin McEnroe.
2: I did do that. I'm wearing it right now. Although just to be absolutely crystal clear, my reading of the Hobby Lobby case would indicate that as an employee of Hobby Lobby, I would still have access to contraceptive sponges. I believe they are. Uh, actually sort of the quote-unquote good contraceptives as opposed to the bad contraceptives. And I think uh, they still would have to provide them to me under, under the provisions of Obamacare. I mean, you can't get them from Hobby Lobby. Let's be clear about that. Uh, I've been on their site all day. I haven't found any contraceptive sponges. All right, so it is time uh, to talk about uh, this year in the Supreme Court. We are so excited to have from Slate uh, Dahlia Lithwick, who is uh, Supreme Court analyst par excellence, and my absolute favorite. Welcome to the show, Dahlia Lithwick.
3: Thank you for having me back.
2: So, um, uh, do, should we start with Hobby Lobby? Or I do, think so. Okay, we it's, have to sort of we have to get it off our chests. <laughs> so, um, well, first of all, you know, in a nutshell, for those people who don't follow these things all that carefully, can you put it in a nutshell for us?
3: I think so. Uh, this is. Uh, uh, case that comes up, uh, under the Affordable Care Act, uh, and one of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act says that employers who are providing health insurance to their employees, and you have to do that if you have more than 50 employees, uh, if you do that, then uh, there's a sort of a panoply of uh, contraceptive devices and, and products uh, that are approved by the FDA. You have to provide those as well. Um And it's just a benefit that that your uh, workers get. And two uh, different plaintiffs come forward. One is Conestoga Wood there in Pennsylvania. The other is Hobby Lobby. Um, And they both claim that four types of contraception that are approved by the FDA and under the contraception mandate Uh, violate the tenets of their faith. And they say these four devices, you're quite right, the sponge is not one of them. Mm. Uh, It's Ella, Plan B, you know, the morning after pills, and IUDs. And they say this, in their view, uh, is an abortifacient. It causes an abortion. It violates their religious tenets, and they cannot provide them without violating their religious conscience. And so the case comes up uh, under some First Amendment claims, but much more notably today under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act which is a statute that says that uh, uh, people who uh, have very, very strong and deeply held uh, religious faith uh, cannot uh, be forced to override that faith unless there's a compelling government interest. So if their faith is substantially burdened, is the language of the law, uh, then the burden shifts to the government to say, well, your faith may be burdened, but if there are a compelling interest nonetheless, And uh, what the court did today that's very dramatic is that it said that corporations, these two corporations, are persons under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And as persons, they can uh, invoke this statute to say that their faith has been burdened. And that's what they did. And the court said, you know what? Even though uh, there is a compelling interest, the government has proven that uh, there's a reason for women to have contraception, uh, they they haven't done the narrowest possible thing they can do to give women contraception, and so Hobby Lobby and Conestoga are uh, able to say we are not going to provide these devices. To our female employees. I don't know if that was short, but at least hopefully
0: it was
2: clear. <laughs> it was very clear, and we should say this is decided today in a five-four decision, uh, a relative rarity. On the, we'll talk about a little bit about this later. I'm sure Dolly and I have both unpacked our SCOTUS blog stack packs, uh, stat packs, which just came out today to show us all the uh, all the statistical uh, variations in the Supreme Court this year. But you know this. This. It gets them into a real thin ice kind of area, right? Because you're basically saying under certain circumstances, certain people don't have to obey the law. Um, And and, uh, obviously that's sort of a thin ice area. I I can't uh, run a lunch counter where I refuse to serve black people. Um and and I'm presume I presume I can't go to the government and say actually I belong to a, relig- a white supremacist religion where we really believe it's like a bad idea to serve food in our restaurants to African Americans uh, so I'd like an exemption under the RFRA. Um so so how how do they parse this so that I can't run my racist lunch counter but Hobby Lobby can opt out of certain provisions of Obamacare?
3: Well, they sort of do it by assertion, Colin. They say. <laughs> For those of you, including the dissent, who are worried that this is going to have a ripple effect and that employers will be able to, for religious reasons, deeply held religious reasons, uh, deny vaccinations, deny blood transfusions, uh, deny equal pay, right? There are religious uh, employers who think that uh, they shouldn't have to hire a woman without the permission of her father or her husband. Uh, So all of these things, as you say, all these basic civil rights uh, questions are 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 thrown open, and the court says that's not going to happen um, because it's not going to happen. And one of the worries in the dissent, and it's really strongly express, expressed by Justice Ginsburg, is wh- why are you saying that this parade of what she calls me twos, you know, other plaintiffs coming forward and saying I also have a deeply uh, held religious objection to something and I don't want to do it. Uh, you can't just say that they're not going to come forward because. Uh, you've just, you know, opened uh, the barn door. And she she argues very, very forcefully that you're going to see all of these folks come crashing through the courthouse doors and saying, um, I object, I object. Now, the court says we're not going to use this to disrupt, you know, uh, for instance, vaccination is a really important uh, other rationale. Uh, we're not going to use this to disrupt, um, you know, Uh, equal pay laws for women. Uh, Notably, the court doesn't mention um, employers who discriminate against same-sex married couples, so I don't know whether it leaves the door open for them to come uh, object. I guess that Alito would say those things are irrelevant here because we say there is an accommodation. There's a narrower fix that is available to the court. It's the accommodation that was given uh, to the for profit, uh, I'm sorry, the not-for-profit religious groups who objected to the contraception mandate, and so because that fix is easy and it's on the table, you just need to offer it to corporations, and I think that would be their simple answer. Is that you know we're not saying that uh, other religious employers aren't going to come along, and we're not saying that the government uh, interest here isn't important. We're just saying there's already a fix; it's better than this fix, which burdens religious liberties. So do this fix. I think that's how they will intend to cabinet, but as you say, it's hard to imagine a world in which um, every single one of those employers does not have the ability to say, even though they're they're a a for-profit corporation that does principally secular uh, uh, work, that this doesn't open the door for all of them to come forward with similar
2: complaints. The other thing that they the, – another thing that they basically asserted, as I understand it in the opinion, is that somehow or other the government will be able to separate the sheep who have re- legitimate religious principled objections to, to something like this from the goats, people – you know, entities which simply claim that they, <laughs> that they belong to some religion or that they have some real religious basis when in fact they just really don't feel like following whatever the freaking law is.
3: Right, and that's been a problem for me, at least, with this case from the beginning, is that everybody stipulates from the get-go we're not going to probe uh, the the depth of the religious belief and conviction. It is not appropriate for courts to even engage in that kind of uh, you know sorting. And and I think as soon as the court says we're not going to probe that, then. Presumably, everybody's contention uh, has to be true. Now, as you said, the court says, well, that's not going to happen. There's not going to be a bunch of of people using this as pretext. But it just finished saying it's out of the business of scrutinizing that. So it's really hard to know going forward uh, how the court is going to uh, separate the wheat from the chaff. And it's also really, really problematic if they are announcing that they don't think it's the the, the province of the court to do that in the first place.
2: Um, Just very quickly uh, as we wrap uh, up Hobby Lobby for now with Dahlia Lithwick from from Slate. The other thing that the court said, one of the many other things that the court said, was that it would expect, I think, that the government, uh, the Obama administration in this case, would basically come up with sort of a contraceptive gap program that uh, if you uh, if you work for a place like Hobby Lobby and you can't get contraceptives that are uh, typically mandated by Obamacare, that somehow or other you'll be able to get them from the government through contraceptive gap, which I just made up.
3: Yeah, no, I like that word. I mean, it, this is a problem, right? Because this is the court saying we're going to shuffle this onto the government to handle. Um, and as I said, they're handling it already with uh, the Little Sisters and other uh, not-for-profits. And so we're just going to expand that uh, and have the government handle it for other folks. And, of course, part of the problem is that that the same uh, Hobby Lobby that objects to uh, affording this themselves uh, may object to this accommodation. They may object to uh, the next thing. But it raises the question, and Ginsburg says this in her dissent very forcefully, are we really going to say that now the government has to be the gap filler, and that if employers, for deeply held, uh very, very serious religious reasons, don't think that women should be paid what men are paid, uh, that the government has to fill in the gaps? And so I think it doesn't solve the problem. It it looks like it's solving the problem, but what it's doing is it's forcing the taxpayers to subsidize uh, the religious convictions of the business owner.
2: Um, Dahlia Lithwick, uh, just uh, m- m- want to make maximum use of your limited time on this incredibly busy day for you. Um, one of the, th- the things that happened this year that's kind of surprising, given the way that we understand or, or think we understand the o- overall tenor of the Supreme Court, is a-, a lot of 9-0 decisions. In fact, 65% of the court's decisions this year, uh, 47 by number, uh, were 9-0 decisions, which is uh, an unusual high. It's-, it's up from the usual average. So what's going on here? Because we thought, with this, and, and recently the buffer zone, the abortion clinic buffer zone case was decided that way. Uh, recess uh, appointments was decided that way. Um, no cell phone searches without a warrant was decided that way. So what's going on? We thought these people were you know mad as, as hens at each other.
3: Well, it's, I, I tried to push a word out into the vernacular last week after the uh, abortion buffer zone case came out, and it was phonanimous. Uh, yeah, I which like it. Means, which means it looks like it's unanimous because all the justices clearly agree on the outcome, but they don't really agree on how to get there, and they certainly don't agree uh, in vociferous and crazy ways. And so you have Justice Scalia ostensibly agreeing in the recess appointments case, but then writing just this lengthy dissent, uh, tearing the skin off Justice Breyer uh, for his reasoning in the case. Uh, same thing in the buffer zone case. You know, you have a, a strong, strong quote concurrence. Uh, Saying, no, you know, this is wrong, you should have gone so much further, you know, overrule the other buffer zone case. Uh, But because the court all gets to the same place, uh, everybody signs on to the opinion. And I think one way to think of it, and I certainly walking into court this morning would have said that this just shows absolute masterful leadership on the part of Chief Justice John Roberts. I mean, he has long said that his hero is John Marshall. John Marshall was, more than any other Chief Justice, able to get Uh, people to come together and to not sort of show the fractious political face of the court to the world. And so I think that there, that is, and it really has been uh, his approach and, you know, credit where credit is due. Uh, I think in the Obamacare case, that's what he did. He put uh, the reputation and the gravitas of the court before his own ideological preferences. So he's been known Uh, to fall on the grenade and say, you know, maybe this is how I would pull the lever if it was just me, but I'm not going to do it because uh, the court has to operate in a way that is, that transcends uh, certainly politics, but my personal politics. And I think he really did a lot of that, uh, this term. I mean, this is an acknowledged, an amazing number of unanimous opinions. I will say that one thing that's interesting, if you want to sort of think through this unanimous what it means, uh, this trend toward unanimity, is look at the Riley case. That's the cell phone search case that came down earlier last week where the court in a clarion voice says with no ifs, ands, and buts that if the cops stop you and they don't have a warrant, they cannot search your phone ever. They can't look at the data on your phone uh, absent exigent circumstances. That's a unanimous decision. There's no cranky concurrence. There's (laughs) no, but what about, you know, dissent, slash concurrences, there's just the court being clear. And I think if you compare that to some of the other cases we've talked about, the abortion buffer case, uh, um, and certainly the recess appointments case, I think it's clear that there's unanimity and then there's unanimity or what I call phononymity. And I think you have to sort of recognize that sometimes the court is all agreeing on the, on the sort of granular detail of what happened in this case, but there. are ideological and political preferences could not be more divergent.
2: Yes, uh, Justice Scalia in the Buffer Zone case couldn't come up with with anything as catchy as hashtag phonanimous. Uh, He did say, I prefer not to take part in the assembling of an apparent but specious unanimity. Right,
3: Um, right. and and also notice that word uh, assembling, which is kind of a shot at the chief for pulling the court together. So it's not just a crack about the specious unanimity but also a crack at I think the chief who kind of manages to sherpa everyone into agreement over Scalia's sense that uh, this is you know a matter of principle that he dissent of course, he also is assembled into that little collective because he agrees
2: too. Right, and th- this is sort of an i forget where I read this—probably in one of your pieces. But um, this has also been an interesting year. I mean, as you say, Justice Scalia is is unique in his ability to issue these fulminating, smoking, fire and brimstone concurrences. Uh, con- <laughs> he's he's angry with things that he actually agrees with, uh, but angry on some basis. But it seems as though this year I've seen some shots coming back at at Scalia. I think. Uh, Justice Kagan's had one, and Justice Roberts. I mean, they sort of now write back to him a little bit and, and, and kind of make fun uh, of his extreme language.
3: Yeah, I think it's not just this year, Colin. I would say in the last few years, there's been a sense that um, sometimes Scalia could benefit from counting to 10 before <laughs> he hits send. And, um, you know, he, he does write some very, very intemperate uh, things. There's a really good, uh, interesting new book intellectual biography of Scalia that's just yeah. come out by a professor by the name of Bruce Allen Murphy. And I would commend it to, to listeners, if only because I think the thesis that draws together uh, Murphy's whole book is that Scalia is so determined to be right that he's given up the power to be persuasive mm-hmm. and that he could have been such a force at the court. I mean, it, not to under, in any way underestimate the force that he has been, but he really, if he could have held his tongue in some cases... He wouldn't have pushed Sandra Day O'Connor away. He wouldn't have pushed Anthony Kennedy away. And that it's this persistent need to sort of slightly overstate it uh, that sometimes doesn't serve his longer-term interests. And I think what you're seeing often at the court is the justices calling him out for that.
2: Um, last topic, and then we'll let you go. I know you have a lot of things to do. And by the way, uh, the breakfast table has been a great place to read about all these Supreme Court decisions, as Dahlia and Emily Bazelon and, and Walter Dellinger and Eric Posner, and I forget who else I'm leaving out, or Lawrence Tribe sometimes.
3: Larry Tribe and, Rich, and Richard Posner.
2: Right, yeah, so there's, they're uh, all firing uh, back and forth. We live in the age of great Supreme Court commentary. It's just uh, terrific to read. So, you know, you talked about the Riley case. That's the cell phone case, where the court, you know, despite, despite the—, the the intro that we played today, um, the court kind of got smartphones right. You know, they sort of understood that uh, Justice Roberts said this is basically not even really a phone. That's an accident of language. It's really a little microcomputer, and it just has everything in it. You can't treat it like the other contents of one's pocket. That seemed to show some some understanding, at least, of what, what a smartphone is, although Justice Breyer, I think, did say that he couldn't get into his because of the passcode problem. But anyway, um, but, you know, there's been this little tenor, Dahlia, in the court, or in people observing the court this year as they tackle some of these technologically driven questions uh, about you know whether or not this group of superannuated people has a real grasp uh, of the technology. Uh, um, somebody made actually a kind of mashup from the Aereo case of all the uses of the word cloud, which I've had Kion Wolf set to music. We'll just play it real quickly for you here.
0: Like the cloud and uh, the Dropbox and the iCloud. So do the iDrop in the cloud. Cloud. Cloud lockers. Such as the cloud. In
2: the cloud. Cloud computing. Cloud computing. Cloud computing technology. Cloud computing. Cloud computing. Cloud computing's cloud lockers. The term. Cloud, cloud locker, cloud, the pure cloud cloud computing
0: on the cloud, putting it over the cloud.
2: Yeah, but it's not. It's not. It's not. And done
0: by the cloud, the cloud computing industry in the
2: cloud. We won't play the whole cloud. thing for you. You get the. Uh, uh, but so they're saying cloud a lot. It's they know they know that that's an important word. But they, they have been sort of characterized, Dahlia, as as techno you know, who, who really are not going to be up to the standards of some of these technologically complex cases that come along here in the digital age. Uh, how do you process that question?
3: Three years ago, I would have been the first one making fun of them, and I I was the first one making fun (laughs) of them. I mean, there were some cases. There was a Pager case, Quan, where they were so terrifyingly clueless that there were tears pouring down my eyes. Um, But you know, I I actually feel like they're they're getting getting a little bit short shrift here. I thought that they did very well in Aereo, and I think uh, the decision in Aereo. Uh, suggests that they kind of know what's going on. Uh, you know, to greater and lesser extent, actually, uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor has proven herself to be pretty darn tech savvy and, and, and very uh, has great facility with the language around it. Um, I will say this about Aereo. I think the reason that they got Riley right is A, they get it about cell phones. They all have cell phones, they have one in their pocket, they all keep a lot of private embarrassing stuff on their phones, and they understand in a deep way that your cell phone today is what the framers would have thought you kept in your desk drawer at the founding. Done and done. Uh, And I think that that's clear to them. I think Aereo was much harder in the way that the Betamax case was difficult, Napster is difficult. All these cases where they have to project forward about new technology is very difficult. But in fairness, if you look at the fallout just in the tech world from commenters around Aereo... They don't agree on anything either. And so it seems to me that this is not a case about failing to understand technology. I think this is a case that is about failing or trying not to fail in an understanding of what future technologies you're quashing when you say, I'm putting Aereo out of business today. And it just seems to me that that isn't a referendum on the court getting it. The court tries very hard to get it. And they indeed say, again, argument by assertion, this isn't going to impact cloud computing. This isn't going to impact all these new tech startups. Of course it's going to impact them. And the court is worried about that. But I just think I'm not completely comfortable ripping the court for being very, very nervous about the possibility of Uh, Either shutting down huge uh, technological innovation in the future that they can't understand because we don't know what it looks like, uh, or alternatively allowing a lot of stealing, uh, which will shut down other things. So it seems to me that I think the court gets it about technology. I think they cannot do any better than the rest of us at predicting what
2: technology is going to look like down the road. Um, I lied. I have one more question. As we as we look um, at this last little gusher uh, of opinions that, that's come out here, you know, I mean, we've known in the past that Citizens United it was pretty much apparent on the day, this is really going to be a gigantic, game-changing uh, decision, and we could enumerate three or four other fairly recent Supreme Court decisions like that. In, in this last group that we've seen, is there one that kind of leaps out at you, maybe not uh, as having that kind of magnitude. But a year from now, is there one that we're really going to be talking about? Like, wow, that really was kind of a game changer.
3: (laughs) Having just given you a soliloquy on the dangers of making predictions about the future, um, I think I would say uh, watch this Harris v. Quinn case, which Mm. is the other case that came down today, and it has to do with public sector unions uh, and whether they have to pay in, whether or not uh, members are actually members. Uh, I think this is a marker, uh, that Justice Alito isn't quite ready to completely uh, decimate uh, the power of public sector unions, but uh, it comes close, and he certainly has language in here that uh, suggests where he is going uh, with uh, these, some of these labor questions. I think this is a case that's going to get drowned out a little bit in the fuss over Hobby Lobby, but I think it's a big deal. But I would also say, I mean, I think Hobby Lobby and I would put it together with McCullen, the abortion buffer case, and probably um, with the town of Greece case that came earlier in the term that had to do with legislative prayer, uh, sectarian legislative prayer before sessions of town council meetings. I think they all tell me that the biggest game in town right now is religious liberty and the freedoms, whether it's the freedom of speech in the abortion buffer case or the freedom of conscience today or the, simply the freedom to pray. Uh, in a secular, in a, I'm sorry, in a sectarian fashion in town of Greece. I think this case has tremendous solicitude for the conscience rights and the convictions of Americans uh, who are most religious. And I think uh, these cases are a harbinger of both the litigation that's coming down the line and also uh, wh- how we're going to see the First Amendment really, really morph to protect those liberties even as the court is systematically cutting away at voting rights and at rights of employees and um, at all sorts of other liberties. So I I think uh, these religious liberty cases are the thing
2: Uh, I'm going to offer a a quick, quick non cranky uh, dissent, and uh, it's not even really a dissent. And just say uh, maybe a a horse to watch uh, in the coming races was the also the recent NLRB versus Noel Canning, simply because the way the case was filed basically was uh, entities that didn't like decisions by by the labor relations board were basically claiming the labor relations board didn't exist because uh, they they were these were these interim or recess appointments to the board that were non valid, Um, and, and looking down the. road, particularly with uh, possible Senate uh, control by the Republicans coming up, you really could have a situation where the Republicans could make various government agencies cease to exist simply by refusing to staff them, simply by refusing to put people on them that would create quorums on them.
3: I I, I don't disagree. I think canning is a big, big deal. I think it was going to be a much bigger deal uh, before we had filibuster reform Mm -hmm. uh, and before we managed to actually confirm Uh, folks to the NLRB. But I think in a theoretical, you know, so in other words, this particular dispute, uh, all the wind had kind of come out of it by the time the decision came down. But I don't disagree in principle. I think that in giving the Senate the power to declare when it's in recess, I guess it can't do so for longer than 10 days, uh, according to the Breyer opinion. But I think in affording that deference to the Senate uh, to block, to functionally block appointments, yes, the court. Uh, Both gave and took away. It certainly affirmed that uh, Obama had robust appointment powers, which the dissenters would have taken away completely. So it didn't completely eviscerate his appointments authority. But you're quite right, I think, in terms of if the Senate uh, wants to, going forward, obstruct, 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 uh, it can use these pro forma three-day sessions till the cows come home.
2: All right. Dahlia Lithwick, thanks so much. And read more of Dahlia Lithwick and tune into The Breakfast Table. It's really a a lot of fun to watch all these uh, analysts just going back and forth with one another. Thanks for joining us. Uh,
3: Thank you so much for having
2: me. All right. We'll be back. We're going to talk talk to Andrew Leonard from Salon.com about why the World Cup freaks out certain kinds of conservatives, like, you know, Ann Coulter kinds. We have powers that are positively regal. Only we can take a law and make it legal we the A case, who get the O case. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine Supreme Court judges. All right, we're back. This is The Scramble. We do it every Monday. Uh, we put it together uh, as quickly as we can based on interesting things that we've read over the weekend or things that are kind of bubbling up in the news. So, over the weekend at salon.com, where, full disclosure, I also uh, write and publish. Oh, uh, There was a, a piece that both Betsy and I liked, uh, Andrew Leonard, who's a technology reporter, editor, blogger, and staff writer for Salon, uh, also the author of Bots, the Origin of New Species, which actually sort of speaks to tomorrow's show, but forget about that for a second, wrote a piece, I mean, I, I think a lot of people saw this piece that was done by Ann Coulter basically suggesting Probably, for her version of comic effect that um, that that America's new passion for the World cup represented as she put it a sure sign of moral decay, uh, but in a very interesting way, Andrew Leonard kind of explored well what's the underlying value system, even sort of granting the premise that ann Coulter is in as as you say, Andrew Leonard, the performance art business, uh, even granting that premise there's got to be some underpinning to the to to her attempt at at injecting herself and in, in maybe a kind of a comic way into this question and I, I thought you raised some really interesting issues about this. So, so give us your take. Why does Andrew? Why does? Why does Ann Coulter care one way or the other whether we watch the World Cup?
0: Well, I don't know what Ann Coulter really cares about. <laughs> I, as, as you you quoted for me, she's in the performance art business, and, and you know the ability to write a good headline is is kind of the most highly rewarded um, journalistic talent these days. But I do think she is playing to a particular audience. Um, and it's an audience that believes deeply in, you know, American exceptionalism—the idea that America is this shining city on the hill. We're the greatest. Everybody wants to be here. And they look at, the, you know, the U.S.'s increasing passion for this world sport, soccer, as as kind of a, a a symbol of change that they're not not very comfortable with. It's a changing America, both ethnically. It's a changing America in terms of being part of the world rather than separate to it or above it. You know, it's it's we become, you know, fans of soccer like everybody else. Why are we, we're we're not so exceptional anymore?
2: Yeah, it seems to me that you know, um, having worked for 16 years in a much more argumentative branch of talk radio and commercial talk radio, that one of the things that happens in in sort of very starkly drawn liberal versus conservative debates is that liberals will often invoke the rest of the world uh, as as an indication that we have an unhealthy relationship with guns or that our, our approach to health care is deficient uh, in other words you know it, it's a, or or that we we use the death penalty more than other industrialized nations you know time and again the rest of the world or the industrialized world or the Western world or, or whatever is used as a kind of benchmark for sanity and and that's in Inevitably rejected in a pretty, you know, spitty and frothful way by, by conservatives who, goes, you know, who say, Europe, why, why would we ever want to be like Europe? The rest of the world, the rest of the world is a vast wasteland. What, what do we care about the rest of the world? So you're sort of suggesting that, you know, as we get more, more and more like the rest of the world, uh, in our, particularly in our, in our sports enthusiasms, it is a little bit of a freak out. Yeah, I think so. And I mean,
0: uh, when Coulter tied it in the end of her piece to changes in immigration law, she was making a direct call out to people who are worried about this kind of white America being overrun by immigration from people who don't speak English, share traditional American values. I mean, that was just a direct xenophobic, you know, call to arms. And you know, to people who feel that way, it's it's gotta be a little strange to see, you know, television ratings shooting up or your Twitter feed becoming completely overwhelmed with people talking about the World Cup or just seeing pictures of masses of people gathered together to watch these games out in public. I mean that wasn't happening four years ago, eight years ago, twelve years ago. It's it's a real change and it sends a big symbolic message that America is changing. And, you know, the kind of if the essence of conservatism is you you want to hold on to the values of the past and, and not, you know, change too fast, that that's, Going to
2: be destabilizing, you know, and I do think that one of the things we've seen, as you say, uh, these television ratings are kind of booming up there. Somewhere between, depending on whose numbers you believe, it's either 18 to 25 million people uh, watch that the U.S. Portugal game. Um, and, and you know, you go around wherever you live, and there are now these little interesting little enclaves where it's not just you know some Celtic bar or something, but you know, almost anywhere you might go uh, during the World Cup games. I mean, the, the the games are on television. There's special seating areas. And and there's people of every possible ethnic and national background. I guess it is Ann Coulter's nightmare, uh, kind of you know sitting together and 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 talking about the games and and grooving on the games. And I you know the other thing that you talked about was just sort of journalists in general. Now Jack Schaefer, who is a columnist who writes about actually the craft of journalism a lot and the business of journalism, used to be with Slate. He if he were still with Fl- Slate, he'd be fired for what he did because David Plotz, the editor of Slate, is an international soccer maniac. Uh, and 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 triumphalist, but Jack Schaefer basically, you know, not on a sort of ideological, ideological conservative basis, but just on a a grumpiness basis, and you know, was saying that he would unfollow anybody on Twitter who was tweeting World Cup stuff, and that he he's he just has this kind of what kind of visceral rejection of this new sports enthusiasm, which seems like a a kind of an announcement, like "I, I don't get what's happening right now.
0: Exactly. And there's a there was a lot of that. I was really interested when the World Cup started. Um, you know, I, I'm a technology reporter, I follow millions of people on Twitter, so I have a very active feed, and I was seeing equally equal amounts of, of people being really excited and people saying, Oh no, I'm gonna set up filters so I don't hear about this, I don't want to know about this, it's gonna be overwhelming, um, or you know, I don't care about this. And I think this is this is an interesting tension here because here's the thing that you could argue you could you can make the case that more people care about this every 4 years than about anything else it is like the biggest sporting event it has the most attention worldwide and when you say i don't want to hear about this you're you're kind of blocking out this you know and you know this this major human moment in the world where we're all talking about you know not just sport but you know you stick all these countries in one place and 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 you have these you know fascinating like right now today france is playing uh, Nigeria, and Germany is playing Algeria. You, you have two colonial powers and two African powers. There's such a narrative of history and politics and culture in there, and that's part of the World Cup. It's part of what everybody's talking about. And when someone like Jack Schaefer says, oh, it's, it's, it's too much, it's going on too long, I kind of stare at that and go, wow, you know, this is the world you're blocking out. This is what's happening. You know, it's great.
2: Well, you know, there's a a counter-narrative that's going on, too. It's just not, for the most part, going on in the United States, although I'm seeing it go on on a comic basis uh, among these two commentators who I just discovered this weekend and I really love called the Men in Blazers, who are being used sometimes on on ESPN, but they're British commentators who, they've been joking a lot about the Americanization of the World Cup and how that's going to actually wreck the World Cup from the opposite side, um, and and they have a great time. They, they, They love referring to it as soccer and then laughing hysterically at that. But even talking about the water breaks that they're having because of the intense Amazonian heat uh, of Brazil for the first time, there are these water breaks and and they laugh and go, this is part of the Americanization of soccer. Uh, Look at all the opportunities to sell things. Right now, they can have a commercial. They can sell bottled water and refrigerators and all kinds of things like that. But I, I think their joking about it also does reflect a kind of interesting anxiety. Like what happens when America really gets its lunch hooks into international soccer? Or how much pull is it really going to have? Yeah, and I,
0: I guess that's a legitimate worry. I mean, I've been hearing that for years that you know people worry really don't know you know what what the worst scenario is if the U.S. actually becomes a great soccer power and they start dominating this like they dominate everything else, um, and you know it, it could definitely happen. Um, you know, I, but I, I'm a little skeptical because I think the the power of of this world event is is greater than any one country, and that that's what makes it so interesting. I mean, you have the U.S. going up against Belgium. In almost no other circumstance would this be considered an even matchup, the that's... mighty U.S. and and tiny Belgium. But in the World Cup, it is, and you know, in the World Cup, you still have a country with three million people, Uruguay, as as a power. Um, So in a way, it's kind of an equalizing thing. And I think it will remain so. Um, But the pressures of commercialization will... You know, come in, yeah. not
2: just from the U.S. Right, absolutely. Well, we can only hope it'll uh, retain its international charm. Andrew Leonard, so great to talk to you. Andrew Leonard's piece appears at Salon.com. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. It was fun. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll be back. We have one more story to tell you. Uh, Angela Carella will be joining us to talk about the Stamford Dog Shelter, which has been, as she says in the news, for 25 years but for all the wrong reasons.
1: Ann Coulter, I promise a compromise. We'll get really involved in the World Cup but withdraw from the International House of Pancakes. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Allison Ehrenreich and Brittany Hill. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Miguel Herrera. For show pages, articles, and the Faith Middleton Show staff's delicious recipe for Brazilian nut cup, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, are we counting on technology to fix everything? And now, back to Colin.
2: Uh, And by the way, I just wrote those announcements that she read, and the mistake was mine. Uh, Lily Tyson, our fabulous intern, is also here, and I believe having a very positive impact on our show even as I speak. So, we have one last story to tell you. Uh, It is uh, the story uh, of the Stanford Dog Shelter. And joining us now is Angela Carella. She writes a column for the Stanford Advocate called uh, Here's the Thing. And unlike the rest of uh, us columnists, she goes out and uh, deeply reports uh, on her columns, which I discourage her from doing. It makes the rest of us look bad. Uh, But she's done some very uh, interesting reporting, as usual, uh, about the Stanford uh, Dog Pound or Dog Shelter. So, Angela Carella, when this story first trickled out to the rest of us in the middle of last week I think it it initially came out this way that the city of Stanford was firing the director of the dog shelter a woman named Lori Hollywood um, because of mismanagement of the shelter because she was engaging in in essentially veterinary uh, practices when she's not a veterinarian but specifically and most interestingly because she was causing uh, dogs to be adopted who would then bite their adopted owners or bite somebody uh, uh, on the property of their adoptive owners. The dogs would be returned to the shelter. She would do something with the records, and she would get these same biting uh, and presumably aggressive dogs to be adopted out again, uh, which obviously seems kind of undesirable. But since then, as you wrote in your column, the story's mutated a little bit, and there, there, there seem to be two sides to it. I think uh, yesterday there was a protest uh, on behalf of Lori Hollywood. So, so tell us how that story is changing now.
4: Well, Colin, I think what's happening in Stanford has happened in – I know it happened in Bridgeport a few years back and other cities in Connecticut and elsewhere where the um, with the recession and budget cuts over the years, many times um, municipal shelters are underfunded. So volunteers step in. And what appears to have happened in Stanford is the volunteer role grew. Um, the shelter director needed their help, took their help, and as what the mayor of Stanford has said – their role may have overgrown its bounds. So now in the protest yesterday, they're saying, Lori did right by the animals. We helped her. The city did not. And here we are. You're you're blaming her for doing what the city could not do. And um, there's so much to it over the years. The Sanford shelter was so badly underfunded that, You know, um, the the state tried to shut it down. It tried to arrest the then animal control officers for failing to file state paperwork. There were cockroaches in the dogs' bowls in the morning when the animal control officers came in. There were feces trapped in all the broken concrete in their kennels. It became so bad that, um, that when Dan Malloy became mayor of Stanford in 1995, when he was running, he said he would fix it. In 1998, he did. He repaired the building. He hired more animal control officers. But at that time, 1998, I don't know if you remember um, Richard Johnston, the man who was in charge of uh, Connecticut Humane Society. He sold the property that housed the um, Connecticut Humane Society office in Stanford for almost 100 years to a housing developer, and he made a lot of money for the society. And he promised he would reopen another Stanford shelter, he never did. It's a very populous part of uh, Connecticut down here, a ton of pets. Um, a city Stanford's now the third largest city in the state, and it has a very transitory population, which means pets get surrendered a lot. That's who he used to take in. And now they all went to the shelter. So after 1998, when Malloy did fix it up and hire more officers, it started the downward slip again. But the volunteers took a greater role, and they did a lot for the pets. Um, they would raise money to get them microchipped. They would buy them food. They would get, pay for their medical care. They would showcase them for adoptions. You name it. You know, people love animals, and they took good care of them when the city wasn't doing it. And now they feel that Lori's being punished for using their help, for doing everything she could do, um, for you know, trying to rescue these pit bulls. Some people are afraid of them, and other people are see that they, you know, it's not. The breed, it's the treatment of the breed. They were horribly abused in Stanford. They were found tied and um, bullet holes in them and starving all over the city. And people um, opened their homes to them with the volunteers' help.
2: You know, um, as in your column, it's sort of clear that if you go back decades, there have been sort of two consistent concerns, two overriding concerns about this. One of them is rabies. This goes back to the time when there was, decades ago, uh, right. a little bit more of an outbreak, a little bit of concern uh, over rabies. And, and as you say, at one point, the state really cracked down on the Stanford shelter because they weren't filing the requisite paperwork about rabies, which is obviously always of paramount concern. And the other one is the one you're talking about right now, fighting dogs, basically. Right and And so, one of the things that you you chronicle in your column uh, is how in the in the nineties, even as fighting dogs and and therefore the abandonment of fighting fighting dogs were kind of on the rise, the city was actually cutting down on its number of animal control officers right. so th- the shelter had more difficult dogs to deal with and fewer trained pr- trained and paid professionals to to deal with that and then, as you say, Malloy kind of bumped things up uh, in', in ninety eight but so what about now? I mean, first of all, I think everybody thinks of Stanford as this you know kind of economic miracle city compared to a lot of other uh, Connecticut cities uh, city of white gleaming office towers uh, <laughs> and and so i mean i don't think people think of stanford as a place where there's a lot of fighting dogs and stuff like that so is that is is it really still a pretty significant problem there
4: It's i would say it's less of a problem than it was then i think it's lessened and people are have been successful in changing minds about pit bulls but it's a city it has all the problems that the other cities have bridgeport and hartford and everywhere else probably on a smaller scale and probably with the greater mix of wealth and you know the the other side it's 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 the have and have nots it's the it's the headquarters of have and have nots but the have not side where there were fighting dogs where there were criminals were breaking in to the shelter when um The animal control officers confiscated their dogs and stealing them back. Um, That all happened. That is lessened, but the dogs are still out there. The dogs are still being abused. I don't think any breed is more abused than the pit bull. So the volunteers and the public kind of opened their hearts to these dogs, and now you see them in neighborhoods all, all over. Some of them have made terrific pets. So there are people out in the neighborhoods who've been calling the paper who say they feel betrayed by what happened at the shelter because they were depending on the shelter to turn over into families good pit bull, pit bull mixes, and other dogs. And that happened. But then what about these ones with the histories of biting and aggression whose histories were whitewashed. So there's that feeling. And then there's the loyalty of the volunteers who saw firsthand all the good work that was being done. They're all now stepping forward for Lori Hollywood. They're, her lawyer is con, you know, trying to convince them to come to court in two weeks when she has to go to court. There's a very strong feeling about all the hard work she did and all the hard work they did, not just for pit bulls, but for other dogs. Yeah, but those dogs are still out there. I don't think the fighting is as much of a problem Crime in Stanford is not what it was in the 80s and 90s. It was a pretty bad problem then. It's much, much better now. So it is kind of a changed city, but it's a city with a lot of pets. Yeah. You Um, know, there's the transitory population, people coming and going. They surrender them. Old folks die. They they leave them. Um, The criminals who had their dogs and got sent to prison ended up there. It was a a, a very strong mix, but... um, so the loyalties are on both sides
2: well I mean uh, Angela and I should have mentioned at the beginning she was Laurie Hollywood the former director was not only fired but arrested and and so were you able do you feel like you have some clarity on this question it's a pretty serious allegation that that dogs who went to adoptive homes and bit people came back to the shelter and were kind of reprocessed Mm -hmm. uh, with maybe kind of their their records cleaned up a little bit or something and sent back out uh, despite the fact they were dangerous that's a pretty serious allegation I mean do you you feel like you have clarity on, on how valid that is?
4: Well, um, we're waiting for the investigation to conclude. It's still ongoing, but um, the um, Department of Agriculture, their State Bureau of Regulation and Inspection, sent apparently sent Hollywood a letter in 2008 and again in 2011 telling her to stop um, um, placing dogs with a documented history of aggression. One of them ended up in Naugatuck, and bit somebody. So the state was tracking this all the way back to 2008. And we know that from what's been released from the investigation to date. So um, you have to assume that the police have something to look at, you know, with these three cases that they keep citing where the pets went out, they came back, they bit, they came back, and they went back out, bit mm-hmm. and came back. So they have some documentation of that that we have not seen. But um, there's there 's something to it that the state and the city have been watching
2: all right Angela Carella, uh, thanks for your fine report. Angela Carella writes a column for the Stanford advocate called here 's the thing we 've got to go thanks to betty uh, and Kayon for uh, today 's scramble uh, We should say tomorrow a conversation about techno solutionism you know, we think Technology can provide quick fixes for everything, but there are some who believe no, actually, technology, when we fix something with technology, we often create a brand new problem or set of problems. So, uh, two of our favorite futurists, uh, Wendell Wallach and Jay Hughes, will be looking at that with us tomorrow. Also, a little bit later in the week, a program about trailers, those coming attractions, 82 of which precede every movie you go to.
1: Chief Justice Coulter, what do you think? Americans don't like it and this effort to foist soccer on us is like trying to get us all to use the metric system which they have been doing my entire life and I'm sorry we still use inches and we use Fahrenheit. I was asking if you wanted to recess for lunch.